Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Joellen Wilson. Joellen is the Juvenile Tarpon Habitat Program Manager for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Joellen shares her journey to Bonefish and Tarpon Trust and BTT's science-based approach to protect and restore critical tarpon habitat. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. First of all, for everyone that subscribed and left us a review, thank you very much. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice, subscribe, and tell a friend. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at PostFly. Brian and his team make it easy for you to discover premium quality flies and gear with a box delivered to your doorstep every month. Check them out at www.postflybox.com and subscribe today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Joellen, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation this afternoon. And a tradition we have on the podcast is we always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Earliest fishing memory. Let's see. I don't know that I can pick just one. I'm very fortunate. I grew up in Southwest Florida, um, which I'll talk a bit about today on the Gulf Coast near Charlotte Harbor. And so I was on the boat at five days old and and fishing with my dad every weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday, we woke up early in the morning, got on the boat and went backcountry fishing. But I guess one of my more funnier, not at the time, earliest fishing memories was when my dad told me he was taking me to Disney World. And I had to be about 10 years old, late elementary school. So I was so excited. We went. Um, Orlando is about a two-hour drive from us. Um, could see, you know, the Mickey Mouse ears, hear the roller coasters, and then he he took a turn, and we went bass fishing in Disney Lake <laughs> for um, probably a half. Uh, knowing him, probably a full day of bass fishing, and then turned around and came home, and that was the trip to Disney World. So I was definitely a fishy kid and from a fishy family. Um, so tons tons of good memories spent on the water. Yeah, that's really neat. When did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? You know, I'm probably your most novice fly angler that you've ever had on the show. Um, I started working at Bonefish and Tarpon Trust in late 2009. Um, and up until then, you know, a little over 10 years ago, I had really only bait fished. I had gone fly fishing a couple of times um, on Montana rivers out west um, and then the in the Bahamas, um, kind of that's what the tackle that the guides had for bonefish, stuff like that. Um, but at that point it was just kind of ribbon dancing to me. I, I had no real training. Um, and then I started working at BTT and Aaron Adams, who's our director of, of conservation and research now, um, had written books on fly angling. He was predominantly fly fishing. And so, you know, he'd always chuckle when I'd talk about fishing and, and what he called soaking baits and things like that. Um, so once I started working at BTT, I figured, well, I better pick up fly angling, I guess, give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty fishy crew down there. Who are some of the folks that have helped you on your fly fishing journey? Definitely when I first started at BTT, um, I was, Aaron was the first employee. Then they hired me in the office um, and also as a research assistant. Um, and then we had another gentleman named Glenn Pittard uh, who taught me how to fly fish. Luckily, we were somewhat on an island in a causeway was our first BTT office in Pine Island. 
And we go out at lunch every day for about 15 minutes and fly cast into this basin that had tons of snook and other stuff, which I wasn't really catching anything. But then uh, we started planning events and, and names came up like Chico Fernandez and Sue Apps and Leslie Cray and Joan Wolf and, you know, people I had never heard of. And then all of a sudden I realized I was among these legends. So I was fortunate enough to be able to, uh, at ICAST, do some fly casting lessons with Joan and also with Lefty. Although I don't know how much I picked up, I was just more worried about not embarrassing myself. <laughs> yeah, that's really neat. What attracted you to a career in marine science, Joellen? You know, I always grew up fishing. Um, thought I was going to be a fishing guide, but then I realized that, number one, they get up early doesn't always fit my lifestyle. <laughs> Number two, uh, they don't fish a ton, right? They, they're on a boat all day watching other people fish. So that was kind of when I figured, well, if I move toward marine science, then maybe I can go catch the fish myself. Yeah, got it. I think the only people that fish less than uh, fishing guides are probably fly shop owners. Right. So, so as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you're a lifelong Floridian and angler. Um, you know, what are some of the changes that you've seen uh, in your lifetime to Florida saltwater fisheries? You know, I'm fortunate um, in the estuary that I fish in Charlotte Harbor that we haven't had the water, water quality issues like other places have all around the state. Um, but I have seen a lot more people and a lot fewer fish. I mean, growing up, it's, it's not anything for me to say 10 years ago, 20 years ago, oh, you could always go to the spot and catch fish. Oh, you could always come here and, and bounce around and, you know, get your inshore slam, your redfish, your snook and your trout. Um, and now it's, it's, they're a little bit harder to find, which means that there's fewer fish. I mean, the technology's only gotten better um, as far as it comes to finding fish. So it's just more people, less fish. Yeah, it's interesting. And for people that aren't super familiar with kind of, and we'll get into this a lot more detail later in the interview about kind of, you know, when we talk about the issues in Florida, you know, I know nutrient runoff is one, I guess you, you have a saltwater freshwater problem uh, going on too, right? We do. We do have heavy, we'll call it water flow changes. Um, you know, we've got our big Lake Okeechobee in the middle. Um, and typically Florida sees what we call sheet flow. So, uh, think of, you know, the water moving just like a sheet all the way down through the state, down to the Everglades um, and kind of spreading out. Since we've channelized so much um, to accommodate Lake Okeechobee, we now have just straight shots out the east and west coast and hardly any fresh water that's moving down into the Everglades and into Florida Bay, um, which, as you can imagine, has drastically changed all of our estuaries. So some of them are getting these pumps or major pulses of freshwater at certain times, and then other places aren't getting freshwater at all. Interesting. And, and, uh, so, you know, you're native Floridian. Um, I know you went to school in Florida and my understanding is your first job out of school, you went straight to BTT and you've been there ever since. What do you do at BTT headquarters? I'm fortunate that I don't have to live in Miami. I know some people scoff at that, but I do get to work, uh, Bonefish and Turbine Trust has five research scientists on staff that we all kind of have either our own territory or our own specialty. In my case, juvenile tarpon habitat. So I get to work out of my home office um, on the Gulf Coast near Charlotte Harbor, um, whereas our main headquarters is in Miami. But pretty much my range is from South Carolina to Central America, 
um, anywhere that we're finding these juvenile tarpon. Um, and then I do all things related to uh, juvenile tarpon habitat and then also some coordination with our local fisheries management agencies. Got it. That's really neat. And for folks that aren't super familiar with Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, can you tell us a little bit about its history and mission? Absolutely. So BTT started about 23 years ago in Key Largo at the top of the Keys. Um, and a bunch of gentlemen got together from the community and said, we want to know what's happening to our bonefish population. Uh, so they started funding scientific research to see what they could come up with since they saw these severe declines. And since then, we've also added tarpon and permit, just the inshore flats fishery to make kind of that complete. Um, but the overall mission is really to protect and enhance all three species, but also their habitat. Um, and when I say enhance, that means that we don't just want to protect the populations, we want to make them better. I think there's a big misconception when it comes to conservation organizations that we don't want to fish, when really what we want to be able to do is keep fishing. Interesting. And I know that the kind of the foundation of everything you do at BTNT is science. Do you do all of the work in-house or do you partner with folks outside of the BTT uh, umbrella? BTT is pretty small. Most people, once they start hearing about our scope of work, don't realize that with a dozen employees, we're able to accomplish all that we do. And that is strictly through our collaboration. So not only with our state agencies and other organizations like us, many universities do a lot of the research, um, but we definitely rely heavily on these other collaborators that we work with. And that's really what gives us our large presence um, and also the ability to do this applicable research. Yeah, that's really neat. How is COVID-19 impacting uh, the field work that you and your partners are working on? Fortunately for me, it hasn't been that big of an issue. Right now, I spend about two days a month in the field doing tagging and tracking of juvenile tarpon, um, which requires a subset of volunteers to come help pull net. So we've kind of put those on pause. However, these projects are on an 18-month to two-year timescale. So it's okay if we're missing a couple months of tagging. Um, I'm also using these antenna arrays that work like automatic toll booth systems that are constantly transmitting. So I'm not missing out on those data and I'm still able to go out, you know, by myself um, and go collect that kind of data. Now we do some, have some other projects such as the acoustic tagging of the larger tarpon to see kind of their migration and movement patterns um, that may have some bigger gaps. Also in the Bahamas, they've got uh, inner island travel restrictions right now, so we can't do our bonefish research. Um, but this is why you collect, you know, a robust amount of data. And a lot of it is spanning years. Our acoustic tagging is, is a, at least a five-year-long project um, with the actual <clears throat> collection data for five years after that. Um, so really, it's when you have these kind of events, you can account for those by adding in other data and, and averaging out the data. I think really our biggest concern is just our funding and events like other people in our situation um, who get a lot of private funding or memberships or things like that. Most of our events are occurring in March and April with our largest in New York City in April that we've had to postpone. Uh, so I think working around our funding challenges, that's going to be our biggest hurdle. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked at length um, with Nick about that, and that seemed to be his thought, too, was, you know, 
hoping that um, things would kind of get back on track on the other side of uh, the pandemic. Um, you know, before we talk in detail about juvenile tarpon habitat, can you tell us a little bit just in general about, you know, the tarpon's life cycle and its range? Um, you know, I don't do a lot of saltwater fishing, and I'm sure uh, I have quite a few listeners that don't as well. Absolutely, yeah. So our tarpon uh, typically are spawning in the summers. Um, so what they're doing is they're forming these pre-spawning aggregations inshore. And that's a really fancy word of saying that they're all meeting up and getting into big groups in schools. That's a lot of times that we call them the season, right, is, is when we start seeing them schooling up on the beaches and things like that. Then through satellite tagging, we know that they have to move offshore in order to spawn. They're diving to depths of about 300 feet. Now, on the east coast of Florida, that's only five miles or so. But on the Gulf Coast of Florida, where we have the shelf, they've got to go out about 80 to 100 miles in order to, to actually find those depths. We think that uh, them shooting to the surface helps them to broadcast spawn, where they're releasing the sperm and the eggs into the open air because of the pressure changes. Um, so then the, the eggs um, and the sperm meet at the surface of the water. That's why we need salt water in order for turpin to be able to spawn so that the eggs can float. Um, and then once the eggs fertilize and hatch, they kind of look like this clear worm about one inch long, um, and they've got to make their way back inshore. So these are what we call leptocephalus larvae. They're the same as eels, ladyfish, bonefish. They all work with the same kind of this clear larvae, which if you're only an inch long in open ocean, that's a pretty good strategy to have. <laughs> um, so then they've got to make their way back inshore into the estuaries. They're not moving up rivers so much, but deep into these back bay areas where there's calm water, also some tidal influence. And that's really where they settle out and metamorphose into the juvenile tarpon. Uh, these places are typically buggy, um, not clear water. So think about kind of your murky water, uh, low dissolved oxygen. So that kind of gives them the advantage tarpon can come to the surface and take oxygen from the air, uh, whereas most fish species can't do that. Um, and then they kind of hang out there. That's what we're studying now for how long and, and at what size do they stay in the nursery habitat or as juvenile tarpon. Then they move back out into the estuary and then they move back out into the estuary and uh, start their what we call sub-adult phase. So tarpon are pretty late to mature, which is unusual for fish. It takes about eight to 10 years for tarpon to reach maturity, which means that they're able to reproduce. Um, so they kind of have this adolescent phase where they're figuring things out and we don't know much about them. So it's not a size class that we've really studied yet. I guess I'm thinking somewhere between five pounds and four feet long um, before they, they move out and and start adding to the, the overall adult population. Tarpon can live about 80 years, so they're really a long-lived fish, something that you can almost compare to humans when you're looking at the life cycle, which again is really unusual for fish. Yeah, and so to translate that into kind of fishing seasons, I guess what people traditionally think of when they're fishing for adults, um, you know, off the East Coast and in the Gulf and, you know, in the Caribbean, I guess are really kind of, they're fishing to fish that are moving to the aggregation. Exactly. Yeah. Typically the ones that you're seeing are they're, they're either moving 
for love or they're moving for food. So you've either caught them um, before they spawn, so they're trying to school up, um, or you've caught them after the spawn where they're they're just trying to eat everything they can. Yeah, and to kind of put a calendar around that for folks, you know, what does that season look like in Florida and how does it change as you kind of move, you know, up the East Coast and out into the Gulf and into the Caribbean? So it used to be about April for the Keys. Um, on our coast, we used to say the first full moon in June. That was the time that you're going to fish for tarpon, meaning that's when they're schooling up to go out to spawn. Um, and then the late summer, early fall is when we start seeing them move up the East Coast, uh, following the mullet run all the way up to South Carolina. But as we start having milder winters, the fish are showing up here earlier. Um, and that's a lot of times now they're here in March and they're in full force and possibly spawning by May. Um, so we definitely see, I mean, we're seeing the effects of how trends in our weathered pattern are changing um, and affecting these fish. We've also heard them up, heard, we've also heard of them showing up in July in South Carolina instead of the normal September that they were used to seeing. Interesting. And I assume the juvenile fish that are kind of in those estuary nurseries are kind of available, you know, all the time uh, until they decide to kind of move out into the big water. Exactly. So we think that they should stay in these nursery habitats for about one to two years. So often they're coming in in the summers, uh, which is beneficial, especially in places that are hard to reach because that's when we have our higher tides, our storm seasons, things like that. So they're able to find these these backwater, ephemeral, um, not always connected habitats as they're coming in as larvae. Um, again, in the summer. So, but then they should stay in there for at least one to two, maybe three years, depending on growth and, and what size they get to be before they move back out into the estuary. You know, so it's interesting, right? So COVID-19, um, you know, everybody's um, impacted by it, obviously. But, you know, one thing that's interesting is it's having an impact on people's ability to fish either for sport or on a commercial basis. You know, what do you think um, this kind of diminished fishing season is going to do for the tarpon population and other species? You know, we still have people fishing for tarpon, which is great. Uh, obviously, in Florida, you know, like almost everybody has a pool, almost everybody has a boat. Uh, so they are able to make their way on the water. Now, when you have a long-lived fish like tarpon, if you think about it, you're fishing them from when they're 10 years old to when they're, let's say, 50 years old. So I think having one off-season isn't going to have as big of a behavioral change. Um, if it was, say, another fish that that you only fished for a couple of years or a couple of seasons, um, I think really the biggest impact is on the guides and just having fewer clients available for, for travel. So although there is some diminished pressure, I don't see that lasting impact on tarpon or their behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, as we kind of shift to talk uh, more about your habitat work and fisheries management, um, can you help our listeners understand kind of the traditional approach that fisheries managers use to manage commercial and game fishing for a particular species? Definitely. And if you've fished at all um, or know anyone that does, you're really probably used to the traditional method that's still in place. And that's by using regulations that are bag limits, you know, um, how many fish, and, and we're talking about harvesting here, so keeping fish. So bag limits, so how many can a 
person keep per day or a boat keep per day, the slot sizes, um, how big do the fish have to be? Um, also seasonal closures, right? We see that a lot when it comes to both fresh and saltwater fish, um, but it doesn't really address the bigger issue of habitat loss and, and degradation that we see affecting these species. Yeah, and I know that that habitat issue is something that's really critical, uh, you believe, to include in management plans. How did BTT reach that conclusion? That's a great question. And, you know, the big three species that bonefish tarpon and permit that we originally were focused on are mostly catch and release. You know, so we often get the question, well, you can't keep them anyways, so what's the issue? But we're still seeing population declines. Um, if you start looking at Florida, we've lost about 50% of our mangrove habitat. Our water flows from Lake Okeechobee have drastically changed how our estuaries function. Uh, when we're looking at bonefish studies in the Keys, pharmaceuticals and other septic-related materials are coming into the waterway. It's really changing how our estuary function and also the overall survival of our fish species in the entire food chain. So the big picture isn't just about the adult fish that we're targeting, right? The big tarpon that people are fishing for, but the earlier life stages like juvenile tarpon that are these inland reliant um, parts of the life cycle. And then also all the prey species that they're eating, they depend on these healthy estuaries as well. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, uh to help me understand it a little bit better, is that habitat focus, is that unique to tarpon, bonefish, um, and permit in their forage? Or do you think that this habitat uh, emphasis needs to apply to a broader set of uh, fish species? Definitely all species are impacted by the way that our coastline is changing, uh, mostly due to, unfortunately, human impacts. Um, a good example for Florida is snook. Um, we've had issues with both uh, naturally occurring issues. In 2010, we had a cold kill that uh, killed about 80% of the snook population. So we shut down the, the snook harvest fishery for a few years. Now, the east and west coast of, of Florida, the snook are genetically different. So they're kind of managed two different ways, and that's why. Um, and also, most recently, we've had some red tide events in the past couple of years, and, you know, anglers and guides banded together, and we shut down snook fishing. Um, but in between, you know, snook fishing was back. Snook were back. It was open, yet we're still not meeting, you know, um, our state management agency. They have these goals, and they're still not meeting these goals when you look at snook you know, their slot size uh, on one coast is only four inches. So that means you've got to be pretty on the money when it comes to wanting to harvest the snook. Um, they also have quite a bit of seasonal closure. So I'd say about half the year, you can't even harvest snook. Um, so they're using these, these kind of old school regulations because that's just what they're limited to at this point. Um, but we're still seeing a loss of snook. We're still seeing that they aren't able to meet these goals um, when it comes to our managers. And what's stemming from that is habitat loss. Uh, juvenile snook have a similar habitat to juvenile tarpon, which is kind of these estuary back bay habitats that are also close to humans. So when you start wiping these out, um, you're going to notice that in the adult fishery and the fish that you're fishing for. 
Yeah, interesting. And what's the biggest challenge to kind of integrate this habitat management uh, focus with traditional fisheries management techniques? Yeah, that's a great question. Unfortunately, we just don't have a good model. We don't know how to do it. Um, Our state management agency, FWC, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, has been working on this at all levels. You know, they want to integrate habitat, but for over 100 years, They've been limited to using what we call stock assessment or population sizes of the fish that they're able to manage and and change those regulations. Like I said, snook's only a four-inch slot, Um, but really that's just no longer working. Yeah, it's interesting because as I, you know, think about this, it seems to me that, you know, it's almost like the tools that the fishery managers need have just not historic or just not available to them, right? I mean, you know, it's really kind of a... It's almost like an environmental as well as a fishery impact to get those guys to work together. And it seems like there's almost like two different um, administrative silos that may not always be working together. That's exactly right. And I think the issue is we just don't quite know how yet. We, we, We don't know how to integrate them yet. And we touched on this, you know, earlier on the interview about challenges uh, on the habitat side. Can you give us a little bit more color about what the current challenges are in terms of uh, tarpon habitat? We definitely see the loss and and also the human impacts of juvenile habitat, which is why we're studying it so thoroughly. But think about tarpon life cycle like a pyramid. Um, at the bottom, you know, you've got your unfertilized egg. That's the most tarpon from that year that you're going to have. Um, then, you know, kind of the next Jenga level up in the pyramid. Then you've got the larvae, right? Their fraction of those are able to make it into the estuaries, still alive. Then you've got the juvenile tarpon, even smaller, fewer amount. Um, now think about if you immediately take 50% of that away, 50% of the habitat is gone. You know, you're really limiting on how many fish that are making it to the adult end of the spectrum or the top of the pyramid. Um, And when you think about it in terms of long-lived fish that's late to mature, things that we did 10 or 20 years ago to coastal habitat um, may just now be seen in the fishery. And so, I mean, I guess part of it is, you know, some of the habitat is literally being drained and developed and is gone. Um, but I, my understanding too, is you've got nutrient runoff. Um, you know, we mentioned these kind of freshwater, saltwater changing water flow issues. I mean, kind of what's the universe of, of challenges on the uh, habitat front? Really, that's kind of, you're hitting the nail on the head with that one, where not only is the landscape physically being changed, um, but with our poor water quality, that's being changed. And these fish just aren't able to adapt to things like that. Things like red tide, I mean, tarpon are prehistoric. They've been around since the dinosaurs. So um, obviously they're used to these natural events, um, but these constant human impacts that change the landscape or, or change the water quality or change the water flow, that's just not something that they're used to dealing with and not something that they can overcome pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and I know you guys are working on habitat restoration, which I guess answers the question that it is possible to restore degraded habitat. You know, what does that process look like and how long does it take to see a positive impact on the fishery? So our take on losing and just changing so much habitat is that we really need to take the habitat as less, even if it is somewhat degraded habitat, 
um, and restore it so that it looks more like a natural habitat or functions more like a natural habitat. Um, so, and that could potentially be one possible solution to, instead of just using these uh, lot size regulations and things, is restoring these habitats, protecting the natural habitat that's left and restoring um, habitat that's been degraded. So in 2016, BTT started a juvenile tarpon habitat mapping project um, where we started collecting locations from anglers of places that currently had juvenile tarpon 12 inches and under. We put those on a map um, and we were able to pinpoint, okay, these ones are natural habitats. So we can recommend you know, to our agencies, to our resource managers, hey, these just need to be protected most likely that the natural habitats are the most productive. And that's really what we want to mimic or, or restore to. Um, the ones, you know, golf course ponds, people's backyard developments, things like that, where these juvenile tarpon are getting into. Then we start working on, okay, which ones are viable candidates for habitat restoration? Because we can't just rely on the natural habitats that are left. We've got to start making the bad habitats better. Yeah. And when you do that, you know, how do you do it? Do you go in and plant plants? Do you, you know, divert nutrient rich runoff? You know, how, how do you actually make these marginal habitats better? So the trick is to try to mimic natural tarpon habitat. So we kind of came up with this list as we're looking through the natural habitats from the sites that we collected and said, okay, these are what the natural habitats have in common. Um, so that's really what we need to recreate for the restored habitats. So it's bulldozers, moving dirt, uh, things like that. We're working on one near Coral uh, We're working on one project near Boca Grande, Florida that we refer to as Coral Creek. And it was six canals that were dug as residential saltwater access as part of a community um, that just went out, ran out of funding, went out of business. So the canals remain and have juvenile tarpon in there. Um, what we did was we kind of created these three different potential juvenile tarpon habitats with these different design elements and duplicated them. And now we can study how how the fish are surviving, how fast the tarpon are growing, um, what prey species are in there. So ultimately, which ones are functioning better and which ones are more productive? And then we can say, okay, the one that had this type of entrance as far as, as water depth, or the one that had this deep hole, or the one that looks like this um, stream or tidal creek, uh, this one performed the best. So that's how we need to design future habitat restoration projects. Interesting. And, you know, how long do you think it's going to take you to kind of look at these kind of different flavors of restoration and try to figure out what the best tools are going to be? Honestly, within the next year, we've already completed about six months of post-restoration monitoring is what we call it. So kind of that tagging and tracking of tarpon through there. Um, Again, we like to have a couple years worth of data just so that way we can account for any hiccups in the system. Um, but yes, yeah, so then the restoration projects that we're considering now should 
get the information from this specific project. Yeah, that's really neat. And how do you fund your restoration work? Fortunately, we don't have to fund the earth moving, which is pretty expensive, um, sometimes on the order of millions of dollars. So we work with our county agencies on projects, also um, the department the Department of Environmental Protection. We also, Florida split up into different water management districts as well um, that are involved in all aspects of earth moving, including construction. Um, and so they fund a lot of the restoration projects uh, in Florida. We've also um, worked on projects that had federal funding from NOAA. Um, and so BTT, we typically fund the monitoring component, right, the tagging and tracking, unless we can find other funding for that. Um, we've got some donors who specifically want to contribute to certain projects. Also, our local national estuary program, um, they'll put funding in for sampling. Interesting. And, you know, to kind of step back from this a little bit, you know, obviously, um, you know, folks that are involved with you understand the importance and you know, my listenership is basically anglers. And so I think, you know, most of them get it. But, you know, what if you're not an angler? You know, why should you care about conserving, you know, tarpon, bonefish, and permit? <laughs> That's a really good question. So about eight years ago, I went to South Carolina for a conference, and it was my first ever Uber experience. And so, you know, the driver asked me, what are you doing here? And I tell him, he had never heard of tarpon. And so he immediately asked me, well, can you eat it? And I said, no. And he looked at me and he said, well, why would you ever study a fish that you can't eat? And so I imagine, you know, the rest of the world also is saying, I don't fish. Why do we care? So although we're tagging and tracking tarpon, it's way bigger than that. What we're really studying is how healthy the whole ecosystem works. And if we can restore these whole ecosystems, which includes not only other fish, also your plants, your birds, how your water is filtered by the ecosystem. So if you own real estate, right, uh, especially waterfront, um, and you have those water flows coming through your backyard, um, we also have a huge economic impact from fishing. In Florida, billions of dollars alone. I imagine other coastal states um, also see this economic impact from fishing. And now you're reaching hotels and restaurants and, you know, this whole other trickle-down economic effect. So if you live or play or work near somewhere where there's fishing going on, um, it's likely that you should care about conserving not only tarpon, but their habitats. No, absolutely. And, you know, as we wind down this afternoon, you know, you know, obviously it's very early, uh, unfortunately to say, I think with respect to COVID-19, even though we're uh, well into the month of April, but, you know, do you have any thoughts on how COVID-19 is going to impact the way the members of our angling community interact with each other in the future? Well, honestly, I sincerely hope that people really rally around the guides. Um, you know, BTT is a big supporter of guides in, in our community and all communities. And we really rely heavily on them for their expertise. They're on the water every day. They're noticing other trends. Um, and they're such an integral part of our fishery. When we have issues, you know, they're a big voice for the fish. Again, they want to be able to fish, but they also want to be able to keep on fishing. So they kind of bring to the table 
another half of BCC. They have the anecdotal data, whereas we can bring the science into it. Um, so I hope that following this, people understand how much we need our guides. Yeah, and I think um, as an outgrowth of your uh, your live stream event you had last Friday, I, I believe you guys are collecting donations for guides on your site as well, correct? We do. And like I said, we're heavily invested in other places um, as well. When we had Hurricane Dorian last year, we also raised money for relief specifically for them. We work with companies like Sweetwater Beer, um, who created a guide beer that helps to fund uh, hardships that guides are experiencing. Um, without the guides, you know, we wouldn't have these fisheries. You know, as we kind of move on, maybe in a little bit more hopeful note, do you have any social distancing experiences on the water you want to share with us? Um, not for me on the water. We actually sold our boat in August, and now we're working on a project boat to get us out there. However, like I said, some of our family members have boats. Um, I'm also in a unique spot because I'm currently seven months pregnant. So that puts me in the, I don't know, most likely to get infected class, I guess, with, with the elderly. So I've really been doing a lot of social distancing, borderline quarantine, going crazy. So um, my saving grace has been going out to the study sites, uh, being able to download the data We've also got some acoustic receivers, so I'll probably get on a boat and go out there. Um, but it's it's funny because we had a closure of our public boat ramps that lasted about two days. Um, and we, you know, in Florida, that's just a, what people do is they're out on the water. Um, so our management agency implemented, I think, a 50-foot rule between boats. Um, but there's still people fishing. It's funny to see people during the week. Now the boat ramps are packed versus just on the weekend. Um, but yeah, people, that's, that's kind of a way that they're able to keep their heads in all the scenarios, just getting out on the water. Yeah, we've certainly seen a similar thing here in North Carolina, not necessarily getting out on the water, but certainly getting into parks and uh, going and chasing trout. Um, for folks that want to learn more about BTT and support its mission, what's the best place, um, for them to go to on the internet? You can visit our website at btt.org. Um, and I'll have more information about all the research projects that we have going on. I'm really just the tip of the iceberg. We also have, um, an annual membership and we have really great incentives. Uh, it's really a testament to how good BTT operates and, and what a good organization we are, that we have so many partners, Orvis, Patagonia, all different lodges that, you know, we're sending people Yeti. Uh, you're already, I think, at 50 bucks and 100 bucks getting hats and Yeti cups and entered to win to go to lodges in Belize and Mexico. Um, so we've got tons of incentives and you're also supporting our organization and our research in these fisheries. In November, we have our every three years uh, started out mostly as a scientific conference uh, where we share all of our data, not just us, but our collaborators and people working within the realm of these species or, or water quality or habitat, things like that. Um, that'll be in November in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and we also have kind of a mini trade show. We have 
panels that talk about fishing and and uh, how to do it, the issues we face, things like that. So it's really cool if you're in the area um, to come to that two-day event. And BTC is also pretty heavy on social media, so you can find us on all those social media platforms. Yeah, and I'll drop links to all those things in the show notes. Uh, Joellen, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me, and uh, hopefully I'll have a chance to meet you in November. Oh, I'd love to. Take care. Thanks so much. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. And again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at PostFly. Go to www.postflybox.com and check them out today. Tight lines, everybody.